Yeah. Um, okay, our reading this morning is from Nehemiah chapters 4 to 6. Um, the Bible scripture is God's word for us today. It's his gift to the church um, in 2 Timothy 3 verse 16. Um, the scriptures are described as God-breathed. Um, And through these, God reveals himself and his character to us. So because of this truth, we hold the scriptures in the highest regard. Um, So now let's hear the Lord speak to us this morning from the book of Nehemiah. Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice Will they finish up on a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward, and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry, and they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us 10 times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked in construction and half held the spears, shields, bows and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah, who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each laboured on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread. And we are separated on the wall, far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, Let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes, each kept his weapon at his right hand. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials, I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? 
Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards and their houses and the percentage of money, grain, wine and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table <coughs> 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance." Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, O oh my God, all that I have done for this people. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come and let us meet together at Hakafirim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sambalat for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. And it was written, it is reported among the nations and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel and that's why you're building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you, you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. <clears throat> and now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him saying, No such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. Now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Metabel, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin, and so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month, Elul, in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letter came, letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Ara, and his son Jehohanan had taken the daughter of Meshalim, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Also they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Um, God, thank you so much for, um, yeah, just the truth that we can read in your word. Um, and thank you that you have gifted people um, such as Travis to um, <coughs> speak um, and preach from your word. I just pray that, um, yeah, you would really bless him now as um, you speak through him. I pray that you would give him words to say and, um, yeah, that he would just help us to really understand and make sense of this passage and what that means 
um, for us today. Um, so yeah, be with him, bless him, um, and give us hearts that are open to hear what you have to say. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning, everyone. Great. Um, you sound feedback. You all sound pretty exhausted with that terribly long passage that we're doing this morning. Um, thank you, Lauren, for reading that. That was fantastic. Um, I, uh, my name is Travis. If you don't know me, um, actually, if you're pretty new, you might not know me because my wife, Lauren, and I have been, have been stateside from about September to January. Um, so we've been gone for a while, but I'm one of the elders here. Um, and, and, uh, yeah, we, we've been going through this book of Nehemiah. We've been looking at the story of, of God calling his people back to rebuild the wall. And um, I don't know if you could piece it together, at least from the reading this morning, but basically we're, this, these three chapters covered the entire time of building the wall, from the start of the work to its completion, um, 52 days later. And really, the whole story of building the wall is all really about the opposition they faced as they built it. And um, so we get kind of the, the privilege of exploring what opposition in the Christian faith looks like this morning um, together. Um, like I said, I, I was stateside for uh, about four months with Lauren um, and our kids, and uh, while we were there, we um, had the opportunity to see a lot of friends and family and supporters. Um, we do missionary work here. We work with university students on, uh, at Queens University primarily, and so we were able to catch up with a lot of old friends and people, and one of the people that we caught up with is a friend of mine named Stuart. Um, I call him a friend. Really, he's my dad's friend, and I'm kind of borrowing him um, for friendship. My, my, my dad actually set him and his wife up in university like, like years and years ago, but when Lord and I moved to Tallahassee, they lived there. We kind of hung out together. Friendship developed, and so um, every time I go back to Tallahassee, we get time on his front porch. It's like a big farmhouse in like the middle of nowhere, North Florida, um, so like just imagine like dusk, all of his dogs running around, two rocking chairs, crickets chirping, like a little bit of Americana. It's, man, it's, it's, it's a delightful situation. So we always get together and catch up, and so we were able to do that this time. And so we hadn't chatted in a few years, and, and we were, he just kind of asked him like how our life was and how ministry's going and all those kind of things. And so I kind of gave him the recap, and, and, and I found as I was talking about um, 2020 that that's kind of where we had last kind of caught up. And I just kind of told him about that year because it was a really miserable year for Lauren and I. Um, earlier on in 2019, we had made a decision to be in Belfast long term. Um, I mean, we had at, at that point been here five years, um, but it all been like every year, like we stay in and we leave in and we stay in and we leave in. And we're like, look, we just need to be here. Like God's called us to this place. Um, we love it. Um, we have a heart for sharing the gospel here. We have a, all these relationships and friendships that are developing. We love our church. Like, we made a commitment to stay, and so we, we made, made some moves, bought, uh, ended up purchasing a house, um, got the keys, like, it felt like six years later, um, but we got the keys in February and moved in, and then two weeks later, COVID happens, and so that is kind of the backdrop of that year for us, um, but when COVID happened, it totally obliterated our ministry, like, we couldn't meet with students anymore, we don't have many students to meet with anyway, um, in, our, in our personal lives, like, we found out in June on Connor's birthday that, uh, uh, you know, one of our supporters who'd been doing our taxes had been doing them wrong. We owed the U.S. government $23,000, which was the exact amount that we had as a down payment for the house. So we buried those feelings and celebrated Connor's birthday and then put the kids to bed and cried for hours. Um, and then so that became kind of a cloud over our year. As we started doing ministry in the fall, uh, or sorry, autumn, I'm American, um, we began to realize, like, how, how are we supposed to discover students when they're not on campus and we can't be on campus? Like, what does it look like trying to engage with them online? It just was really difficult when we didn't have... Ministry was really tr trying in that time. Along with that, too, we had, amongst our team, just a ton of strife and discord. Um, people, had, people who were stateside ended up going back home. Um, there were a lot of cultural, like, you know, Americans not having any cultural training, engaging with Northern Irish situations. And really, our Northern Irish staff didn't have any cultural training engaging with the Americans. And so there was conflict there. There was disagreement over how we as a ministry and as the church and as a country should be handling COVID. It was just, and it was really messy and ugly 
conversations about all that. So that became the thing we were dealing with. And then further on in the fall, um, my, my mom got a second breast cancer diagnosis. And so we found out that she was going to have a double mastectomy and then later on a hysterectomy. And I mean, just, it was just so much stuff. And so that year was miserable. We ended up going back um, to the States for Christmas, had some really good time with family. It was really restful. But even in that season, everyone was asking us, like, why are you there and why are you going back? And we were kind of at a place where we were like, we don't really know anymore. Because it seemed that once we made the decision to follow Jesus, everything went sideways. The circumstances, the relationships, like it was all bad. Um, we ended up coming back anyway in January um, of 2021. And when we got home, we had this sense from the Holy Spirit that we were where we were supposed to be. Like a, like a kind of a reaffirming of God's call for us to be here long term and all that. Um, it was a really kind of pretty, you know, Holy Spirit, supernatural sort of experience for us. And anyway, I'm telling Stuart this whole story. And, and he says, you know, it, it's funny. He's like, I've lived more life than you because he is older. And he's like, and every time I've made a decision like that, like I feel God's calling us as a family to take this new job, move to this new city, do this new thing. I'm, I've come to expect a season of opposition whether it's circumstances starting to go bad or relationships starting to fall apart or even like sort of a spiritual warfare, like just personally wrestling with accusations of like character issues or whatever it is that I feel like, like that, the, that the enemy's kind of putting in my brain. Like I just always go through this season of opposition and, and, I, and I've learned that I've just got, I have to endure it. And then on the other side, I get to see the fruit of God's call in my life. And it was really encouraging to me to hear that. I mean, we've kind of experienced that ourselves. Um, and I share with you that really long introduction because it's basically what Nehemiah, what we see happen in the passage here. Nehemiah and, and the Jews come back to Jerusalem. There's a call for them to rebuild the city wall. And they begin the work. And it's just all bad. It's, it's, it's opposition on the outside, opposition on the inside, lies and conspiracies, all sorts of things are happening. And what we see here is, is an example of what it looks like for God's people to remain faithful, faithfully obedient to God's call in the midst of opposition. Um, and I think there's some things for us to, to learn in this. Um, what we're going to see is three types of opposition. We're going to see external opposition um, from the enemies of God. We're going to see, um, use the word opposition, but really internal strife and discord among the people of God. And then we're going to see lies and, and untruths and how those can seek to sabotage um, God's work. So we're going to see three oppositions. We're going to see from those oppositions two temptations for the people of God. Um, one of those temptations is to fear, and one of those temptations is to be distracted. And then we're going to see how we're meant to respond, or at least how Nehemiah and the people of God respond, which I think is kind of the lesson for us to learn here. Um, Warren prayed already. I'm going to pray one more time for us as we look at this, um, and then we'll get on with it. Um, God, thank you so much for your word. Um, your word is true, um, and it is right, and it is for our good. And so as we look at this passage, God, um, and consider it for ourselves in light of the calling you put on our lives as followers of Jesus, but really also as a church, as Village South Belfast. Um, I pray that we would be encouraged to continue on in the work that you've called us to do in this city, um, even in the midst of opposition. Um, so God, I pray you'd speak through me. I pray that you would encourage us in this. And it's your name we pray. Amen. Um, Three chapters is a lot, so we're going to be kind of doing a survey. Um, I was telling Barbara read this morning that I like to like go microscopic with the scripture and take like a few verses and just really pick it apart. And this is more like a spyglass where we're kind of looking at a, a real big thing. Um, so uh, I think for us as we do that, um, the temptation for me is to really get into the nitty gritty of it. But I think there's a there's beauty in the narrative in scripture a lot of times. And so um, I want us to kind of see the beauty in this narrative here. So the first chapter, 
that we're looking at is chapter 4, and the opposition to the work of the people of God is external. Uh, Sambalat um, and Tobiah and others um, start by mocking the people of God in their work. They're making fun of them, they're just trying to discourage them, and, and yet Nehemiah and people of God carry on. So they ramp up their efforts um, and begin to scheme and put a plan together to attack the people of God and cause confusion and sabotage the work they're doing on the wall. External opposition. And so Nehemiah um, and the people of God, in response, pray, um, first and foremost. And I love, the thing I've loved most about this book as we've gone through it is his response is prayer. Even if you look at the, like, the narrative as he writes, he kind of writes prayers in his like, account. God, remember these people. God, remember this thing. Um, is like a present prayer in terms of like as he's recounting the past, and I think it's really cool. Um, so they pray first, and number, and the second thing they do um, is they begin to uh, make preparations to respond to what is happening, and and as a result, among the people of God, because of what the enemies of God are doing, um, they they are beginning to be discouraged. Um, people that live in the area are are talking are 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 inviting their families who are working on the wall to come back home, to leave Jerusalem and stop the work and come back home. Um, there's obviously fear of the threat of attack. And so what Nehemiah does is he prays. The second thing he does is he encourages the people of God um, by uh, reminding them of who God is. Um, he says in verse 14, do not be afraid, which is the most common command in the Bible, if you didn't know. Um, he, he tells them firstly, don't be afraid. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. He calls them not to be afraid and to remember the Lord and to remember who God is. And then finally, there's this practical response, right? He, he takes half of, half of the workforce and commits them to the protection of the city. Um, some workers are working with a weapon in one hand and doing the work with the other. Um, there's this picture of a prepared response but in the midst of all that, they don't stop working. And then we see in chapter 5, the second opposition, which is internal strife and disunity. And what's happening at this point is in the midst of that, there's an external threat happening this whole time. In the midst of that, internally, we find that poorer Jews are being oppressed by their fellow Jews who have means to the point even of enslaving one another. There's a famine at the time, which I'm sure makes everything much more difficult in terms of building a wall. And there's these taxes levied on the people by the Persian government that the people have to pay. And obviously most people who bring the normally, normal livelihood have set that aside to work on the wall, to do this work that God's called them to do. And so what you have is you have families and people who need to eat, obviously, and you also need to pay the taxes. And so they're, they're having to they end up having to mortgage away their orchards and their farms and their very homes. Um, and even some families have gotten to the point um, of having to um, yeah, give up sons and daughters and family members to slavery. And let me press pause right here because we have a picture in our heads of what slavery looks like. This is more like an indentured servitude thing. So this is like, we owe you money and I will commit to work for you, or my son or daughter will work for you for so many years to pay off the debt. Um, it is a bit oppressive, but it's not quite the way we view slavery in terms of taking someone from their homes and that whole thing and it being forever, right? Um, and so the, the tragic irony of this whole thing that's going on is that the Persian Empire had just done this to the people of Judah. They had just come, they had just taken all their homes, they had just enslaved, the, so to speak, the entire country, levied a tax on them, all this stuff. And so now in this season where God's brought favor among the people of God with the Persian Empire and allowed them to come back home and rebuild their home, we find that the people of God are treating one another the way the Persians had just treated them. And so Nehemiah's response um, is anger, because this should not be. He rebukes the Jewish nobles and officials and in verse 10, sorry, I missed a slide, guys. You can go ahead and skip ahead. In verse 10, he says, um, he, 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 he rebukes them. And then in verse 10, he even identifies with them and says, Moreover, I and my own brothers and my servants 
are leading them, uh, lending them money and grain, let us abandon this exacting of interest. So Nehemiah calls out the situation that's happening. Um, he rebukes them. And he actually says, but you know what? Look, I'm not even above this. I've been doing it myself. Um, and we all need to stop. If we, if we want to see the work of God completed, all of this needs to stop. Collectively, Nehemiah and the nobles make a commitment to repentance and restoration of the wrongs they've done, um, which is great. Praise God. Um, and then finally, if we look in verses 14 and 19, Nehemiah takes the time to kind of press pause on the story and say, actually, from that time, throughout the rest of my time in office, the 12 years that he was there, here are all the things I did to try to serve the people of God. I had this allowance. I, was, I had rights to these things. I set all these things aside so that we could rebuild. And then he closes that by saying in verse 19, Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for, these, uh, for this people which is a really interesting prayer for him to pray because I don't know if I could pray. I, I, I would be, I don't know how do I say this. If I prayed that prayer for me and the church, I wonder how many things God would remember when I say remember what I've done for, for, for you know, um, for this people. And I wonder if him remembering would be for my good. Does that make sense? Um, but Nehemiah has such a confidence in everything he's done. He's like, I've done everything I possibly can for this people. God, remember it for my good. And then finally, we see conspiracies and lies. And really, this is just the effect of lies and untruths on the people of God. Sambalat and Tobiah, who have now had their plan of attack foiled, and others try to lure Nehemiah away from the work to harm him. And Nehemiah's response I think, is so good. Um, He says in verse 3, in response to them, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? Nehemiah recognizes that there is no thing more important than doing what God has called him to do at this moment. So whatever request they made, and it doesn't say what they were trying to get him to talk about. He's just like, it's just not as important. I'm doing a good thing right now. And your thing's not as important. Then later, we see that Zimbabwe and Tobiah then basically create a conspiracy. They send an open letter. And an open letter at the time meant, letters at the time were sent sealed. This is a message for you, and you can know that no one else has seen it because it has been sealed. But a letter that's open is, hey, I've been telling everybody this, and now I'm going to let you hear it. And so what Zimbabwe and Tobiah have been telling everyone is like, hey, um, we're telling everyone that you're rebuilding the wall because you're seeking to rebel against the empire. And we're going to tell the king, and we're going to tell these people, and there's going to be a problem, right? They're creating a conspiracy that's not actually happening um, to try to cause fear among the people of God and, among, and, and for Nehemiah himself. False accusations, false testimony. Nehemiah's response to this is, um, it says that they want to frighten us um, in our thinking. Nehemiah's response to this um, is to say that you're making these things up in your own head. He has a confidence in the truth, even to the point of not being afraid of someone else believing the lie. And then later we see a false prophet try to get Nehemiah to flee another planned fake conspiracy um, and to run to the temple, which would have discredited Nehemiah because he wasn't a priest and wasn't allowed to go to the temple. And so he's like, no. I don't, I, I, a man, he says something like a man such as I can't go in there. Like, that's not my, I'm, that's not my place. I cannot go into the temple. Um, and then God reveals to him that this was also a conspiracy, that Sembalat and Tobiah had paid this guy off to, to try to get him to discredit himself by doing this thing. Um, and I belabor the recap here because there's a lot happening um, in all this. And I think there's a lot for us to learn from Nehemiah's response. Because we see in all of these oppositions, right, the three oppositions, we see the two temptations. There's the temptation to fear. Um, I am a, a pretty fear-based person. Most decisions in my own life I make because I 
am afraid of, of like what the, which, which option is going to cause the least problem. If both of these things happen, the worst version of them, then I want the one that's going to be the least worst version of the thing, right? Um, and so when I read this and I keep say, seeing the idea of, of, of people wanting to like cause them to fear, cause me to fear, I like really relate to Nehemiah. Like they're trying to tempt me to fear, to quit the, to quit the work. There's a temptation to fear and to quit. Um, there's the outside opposition causing the people of God to be afraid by th for, for threat of violence and to stop the work. Um, there is the fear of the conspiracy um, and stopping the work. There is the fear of all these plots for Nehemiah's life, for him to, to run into the temple to stop the work, right? And then we also see the temptation to be distracted, um, to look at the outside opposition and to engage with it. The people of God could have stopped working altogether and just prepared for battle. And like, we're going to just be ready for the attack until the threat of attack is no more and completely stop work on the wall. The issues they were dealing with internally were a distraction. There are more than that. I mean, there's like other problems there. But ultimately, in terms of when we look at like the building of the wall, the calling of God on his people at the time to do this work, it, it was a distracting thing. It, would, it, would, it was distracting and derailing for all that. And then with the lies and the conspiracy, their distractions for us to engage with. Now I want to get to the fun part for all of us about application. Um, and I really struggle with this because opposition for us as all as individuals looks different. Um, I know I kind of told you to recap the story of our 2020 and the there. And really opposition can look like the enemies of God. It can look like spiritual warfare, but it can look like circumstances and difficulties and things getting hard. Um, when we look at external oppositions, we can look at things like mockery. And I don't know what that looks like in your life, but it's like, it can be people at work. It can be relationships that are, you know, animus towards you because of your faith. Um, culturally, when you look at the people of God versus, like, the world, um, there's, there are many, I mean, take your pick of different narratives, whether it's sexuality or gender identity or all these kind of things that are happening where the culture says, like, things should be this way, and the people of God say, well, the Bible says this, and we want, we believe that. And so the response is, like, you're bigoted, you're, you know, hatred and whatever else. And that's what happens on the outside. Globally, we prayed about this morning, there's also the idea of threat. And we, I, I think we read this, and we kind of, like, bypass the, the, the threat part, because in the West, like, no one's going to come to my home and take my kids, because I believe in Jesus. But that's the reality for a lot of our brothers and sisters throughout the world. Um, I was actually listening to a, a pastor this week talk about this idea, and there's this funny thing, and I don't know if it's true for you, but it's true for me, where I almost have an expectation that, that, that the church globally, especially in these areas, um, will persevere in the midst of that sort of persecution. Just because I hear so many stories about it actually happening, about, about people not turning their back on Jesus, like holding firm to their faith, to the point of death. But then he said, the funny thing is that we expect that of, of them, of those Christians, and yet we ourselves hesitate to identify with Jesus for fear of an unfollow on social media or because things might get weird with a coworker or, you know, the next family gathering or Christmas might get a little, you know, might be some drama or whatever. And, and he's like... Um, and it was really convicting for me to think about that idea that um, that's, what the ex that's what external opposition looks like for us. Like, for the church in those closed countries, the enemy has to go to such drastic like, levels to try to get them to stop being about the kingdom work. But for us, sometimes he only has to go as far as making us afraid of what it might do in a relationship with a coworker for us to not follow Jesus and be obedient to what he's called us to do. With the internal strife and disunity, we see that this can cause a huge distraction um, in terms of, 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 gospel, of gospel work and the gospel going forward. 
And I wonder for ourselves, like, how do we encourage one another towards unity? And I think that's what you see here. I mean, it's, it's in the form of rebuke, but Nehemiah is saying, like, is, is, is calling the nobles to be, uh, to, to repent and to be about unity. He's encouraging them towards unity, and he's identifying in his own life the areas that he hasn't been about unity. And then he furthers it to a place of commitment for the rest of his time in office to be about serving and loving and being for the people of God. And when I think of disunity for ourselves and the distraction that it can cause, I think our response, and I really agree with this part, I think the, our response should be like Nehemiah's, where in as, in, in as much as it's our responsibility and we, where we can, that we should encourage one another towards unity. And so whether we have relationships amongst ourselves in your MC whoever in church, with your family or whatever, to be about reconciliation and forgiveness, to not, so to speak, exact interest on one another. But more importantly, in, in, more, more important than encouraging one another towards unity, I think we need to look honestly at our own hearts and lives and be like Nehemiah where we can come to God and say, God, I've done everything I can to love and serve the people of God. And I don't know what that looks like. And that's been the problem with application of this whole sermon. I don't know what it looks like for you to do that in your life with your relationships. But I know that all of us should do that how God leads us in all of our relationships. Because that unity is critical um, to the people of God building the kingdom of God here on earth. Um, I imagine that our enemy takes no greater joy than seeing the people of God not be about building the kingdom of God because they can't love each other the way um, Jesus has loved them. And it makes me sad. Um, and as an elder, we've had, I've had the experience, I've been here a year now, I think, right? About this time last year. So I'm a veteran. And, um, one of the things that I, I don't know what to expect from this experience, I suppose, but one of the things that I've really, really appreciated is that in the moments where we as elders have, have dealt with and tried to navigate issues of disunity, discord, whatever else, um, literally every time we've talked about it, and it's always been someone else that's brought it up, has said, like, hey, before we, like, decide on doing this, that, or the other thing, do we feel comfortable explaining to Jesus one day that we're going to do this this way? And... I've loved that idea that we want to assess how we're treating our brothers and sisters from the place of being like, can I explain this to Jesus? And like, if he's like, hey, why'd you do that? Did you do that because like it was justice, but really it was more vengeful, or did you do that because you love your brother and want them to be part of the family and want reconciliation and forgiveness to happen? And finally, when we look at the idea of lies, I think we see Nehemiah hold firm to the truth to the point that he says, I have confidence in God's calling me more so than you inviting me out to the wilderness to have this conversation about whatever you want to talk about. I'm doing a great work. I'm staying with it. And then the conspiracy that gets built around him, and he's like, what you're saying is made up, and it's not true. And so I'm going to carry on with the work God's called me to do and not worry about what you're trying to do with that. And even with the false prophet, someone who claims to be from God, who tries to use the word of God as an excuse to call him away from and discredit him from doing the work of God, even in that situation, he knows and holds fast to the truth um, and obeys to the point of being like, hey, look, I'm not a priest. I can't go in there. Like, I can't do that. And I don't think in our lives, hopefully, we're ever going to have a situation where someone's trying to create a public conspiracy about us for people to believe. But I'll tell you what happens to me every single day. It happened to me this morning as I was sitting in that chair. I hear the enemy tell me that I shouldn't be up here because I'm a sinful person, because of how I treated my kids this weekend or because of how I did this or because of that. And there are lies about who I am or who I should be or how I don't deserve this or that or whatever that I'm told and that happened in my head all the time. And I need to hold on to the truth that the Bible says that in Christ, 
I'm a new creation and I'm a co-heir. Um, my right to be up here this morning isn't because I know the Bible backwards or because I've been a Christian longer than everybody else or anything like that. It really only ever is in because of what Jesus did on the cross. That's it. That's all it ever will be. That's all it ever will be for any of us. And so, um, do we hold fast to the truth of who we are in Christ, or do we listen to those temptations and those accusations and those lies um, and, and in fear or because, and in fear just not follow God's call in our life? One of the things I think is really cool, if you look at the life of Christ, is that when he was baptized and the Holy Spirit came down to him um, as a dove, and the Father says, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, that that moment, two things about that moment. One is that moment, at that moment, Jesus hadn't done a miracle yet. He hadn't started his public ministry. And more importantly, he hadn't died on the cross and created that gospel work. Um, and he hadn't been resurrected yet. And even so, the Father says, this is my beloved Son, and in him I am well pleased. Meaning that the pleasure of God the Father in God the Son had nothing to do with what God the Son had done, but in who he was. And in that confidence of who Jesus was, he then went into the wilderness for 40 days where, the, where Satan himself tried to discredit who he was. And Jesus, believing Scripture and speaking the truth of Scripture and clinging to the truth of Scripture, like, refutes the devil and then begins his public ministry. And I think when we consider how we are to be about rebuilding the kingdom of God here on earth, I think we need to have more of a confidence in our own identity as believers and not be distracted with the accusations that we hear and feel from the enemy. Zooming out to kind of the larger narrative of the story, right? We had the three op oppositions. We had the two temptations. We kind of have a response to them. I think to summarize our response whenever we experience opposition, should be prayer, like Nehemiah does, and it should be faithful obedience. And here's why. The temptation is to be afraid. The best way to deal with fear as a believer is to bring it to Jesus. I love Nehemiah's first prayer in the beginning when this all starts, and he says, here, Oh, our God, for we are despised. Turn your back on their taunt, on their heads, and give them up to be plundered in the land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt, and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. That prayer is a prayer for justice, but really what he's saying is like, God, this whole thing, you take care of it. He trusts that God, who is a God of justice, will make it all right, and will protect them, and he has got a confidence in the call that they have to be really building the wall that, that he's not going to concern himself with what they're doing, but is going to deal with the fear by praying and then be faithfully obedient. So we deal with our fear by prayer, and we deal with the distraction by being faithfully obedient to the call God's put in our lives. I think... Uh, I kind of mentioned sort of like the cultural things we hear from the outside a lot. This is the only kind of other really practical application I feel like really hit us, hit, kind of hits all of us this morning. But I, I, I think I see in my friends, in different churches, I see on social media that, that a lot of sort of the cultural moments or conversations that are happening in regards to, I think more, most specifically probably gender identity, uh, sexuality. Um, there's other ones that, that are probably different topics that kind of fit there, where it's kind of a, world, a, a worldly worldview versus the biblical worldview, and then being at odds. Um, I see a lot of churches and individuals who are so concerned with a proper biblical response in the public sphere to those things that they've forgotten that the whole reason we're all here is to build God's kingdom. And it's all about defending the faith and not about sharing our faith. 
Because Jesus, when he ascended, didn't say, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go now, therefore, and tweet a biblical rebuttal to the latest abortion decision from whatever court or legislature or whatever else. He said, go now, therefore, and make disciples. And so it's not wrong to engage, and it's not wrong to defend our faith. I'm not saying don't do that or don't read books or don't be prepared or any of those kind of things. The Bible says that we should be able to defend our faith. But I think what we can take from Nehemiah and the people of God in this story is that they are faithfully obedient in the midst of everything, and none of those things distract them from the work that God's called them to do. There's a reality that when we're about building the kingdom of God here on earth, we will face opposition. It just happens. And it makes me consider that if I'm not experiencing opposition in my life, how much kingdom building am I actually doing? And I usually hate the answer to that question. Or feel guilty about it, maybe. But it causes me to repent and be about the right thing. The other thing I think is really interesting about all three of these chapters is you don't see God do any miracles. There's no fire from heaven. There's no legions of angels to protect them as they're building the walls. Um, there's no just walk around the city seven times and the walls reassemble. There's nothing like that that happens. And yet, they finish rebuilding the walls of an entire city in 52 days, which is miraculous. So miraculous that it says, all of the nations around us were afraid and felt greatly in in their own esteem, for they perceived that the work had been accomplished with the help of our God. And I think there's a real lesson here for us. God didn't do anything miraculous. He didn't do any like, actual miracles. But what he did do was answer the prayers of Nehemiah and the people of God. And through their faith-filled perseverance and obedience as the people of God, he did a miraculous thing. And so it makes me wonder what miraculous things could God do through our church in South Belfast if we pray and if we're faithfully obedient to what God's called us to do to share the gospel with people. Even in the midst of opposition. Um... The tragic part of the story, and you'll see it at the end of chapter 6, is that op opposition continues. The work's done, the wall's built, and yet he even talks about these, how there's these nobles that are reporting on him to Tobiah and telling and kind of getting in his ear about what Tobiah wants to do, and there's just like this, it's just, it's just still happening. The opposition still persists. And the reality is that the difficulty of following Jesus and building his kingdom here on earth has been and always will be because of sin. But to enter even broader from this story into the eternal narrative, the rebuilding we're doing as a church isn't a wall of a city or a temple like Ezra did. It's about building the kingdom of God, which is eternal and won't ever be torn down. This wall they built, for the most part, it's not there anymore. There's still pieces, but it's in disrepair, right? Like, it's just, the, the temple was torn down 400 years later, like, and they, they were good works of God that he wanted his people to do. But the work that we're doing is a church that Jesus is building. The rebuilding work that we are doing began with Christ on the cross, and it continues now through his Holy Spirit and us, his people, the church, and it's eternal, and it will last forever and the gates of hell will never overcome it. And so that's my encouragement for us this morning. I'll go back to what Nehemiah said to, the, to his enemies. I am doing a great work, and I'm not going to stop working. God's called us to a great work um, as a church of building his kingdom, of sharing the gospel. And so... Um, I want us to be encouraged with this. Um, one, of my, uh, one of my favorite authors, Christian writers, was a pastor, A.B. Tozer, has a line in a book where he just basically says that God in his grace has made the Christian walk blessedly simple. He calls it blessedly simple. And it's blessedly simple to do this. 
you want to persevere in the middle of opposition, then we ought to pray and just be obedient. Trust what God's called us to do. And so I want that for us in our church, and I want us to participate in the rebuilding work that Christ began in our, uh, on the cross here in the city now. We take communion every Sunday as a reminder of that work. Um, And I love that we take communion every Sunday. I know every church does it. But we take communion for these reasons, to remember the rebuilding work of Christ in our lives as a people, to be called back into right relationship with God the Father. And that started with his crucifixion and his resurrection. And so we take communion to remember that, that Christ was crucified for our sins that our sins might be atoned for and forgiven, and then he was raised from the dead, that we might have new life as well, and be new creations, and have new hearts, and new desires, and live for him. And so we remember Christ's body that was broken for us. We remember his blood that was shed for us, and as part of a new covenant between God and us, because of the work of Christ, that we can have our relationship with him. And so we are going to take communion together now, as we always do, And as we do, I want us to um, reflect on the work of Christ and the rebuilding work he's done in our own hearts and lives, um, calling us back into our relationship with the Father. Um, I'm going to pray for the table before we take it. Um, And then Jad will be up and play. And as we sing, just reflect on what Christ has done for you. Father God, we thank you um, for the table. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for the work um, of the cross. Um, God, even in the midst of the accusations we feel in our own hearts and lives of how unworthy we are to take this, um, we are. We're unworthy except for Jesus. God, thank you for the work of the cross. Thank you for your blood that was shed for us um, to make an atonement for our sinfulness. And thank you for the new covenant you've made with us in that through Christ and in faith in him alone, we can have a right relationship with you. We can be made new. God, help us to remember that and reflect that now as we take this together. In your name we pray. Amen.